Buhai. I am Jamie Panetta, and this is the Decolonizing Medicine Podcast. I am a queer, non-binary trans person, and my ancestors are Tagalog and Chinoy. My healing arts practice is located at Fruit Camp in Baltimore, Maryland, and virtually. I adored talking to our next guest. She is absolutely brilliant and connecting all the dots in so many ways. Rebecca Mendoza Nunziato is a Chicana Masters of Divinity candidate at Harvard Divinity School and co-organizer of the Harvard Nahuatl Language Group. She is a graduate of the University of Oregon with experience working in community organizing, advocacy, education, and storytelling in Denver, Colorado. Broadly, Rebecca's scholarship centers indigenous philosophy and religion, specifically how rituals create kinship among humans, plants, animals, ancestors, and land in the Americas. Her focus on Mesoamerican and Chicanx cosmovision is guided by decolonial methodologies. Over the summer of 2022, Rebecca was a research fellow in the pre-Columbian studies program at Dumbarton Oaks with additional support by the Moses Mesoamerican Archive and Research Project. Welcome to the Decolonizing Medicine Podcast. What's up, Jamie? How are you doing today? I'm really, really glad to be here with you. Um, As you know, I'm in kind of a weird summer space between school and work and all that sort of thing. So this just feels like this feels like really good medicine to be with you. Awesome. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. This is um, (laughs) part of our crossover podcast episode. So I uh, was interviewed by Rebecca back in February? Yeah, I think it was February. It's been a minute. And then the episode came out in June. Yep. What is time anymore? Anyways, (laughs) (laughs) this is like part two. Yes. Yes. I love it. Of this like nonlinear conversation that we're having around decolonizing medicine and ancestral practices and all that good stuff. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I am very curious about how you got to Harvard and how you got (laughs) to studying the things that you're studying. Um, Because it's not, it's not necessarily like, they're not like topics (laughs) I would necessarily think of to put together Mm -hmm. in like a course of study at Harvard Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about your journey (laughs) to Harvard Divinity School and learning Mesoamerican traditions yeah yeah I appreciate that I appreciate the curiosity I love anyone who's like wait why are you there like it's it's always such a good important question to be asking and I ask myself a lot um as well so I, yeah, I'm at Harvard Divinity School, which is essentially religious studies broadly. Um, they call themselves uh, pluralistic religious education. Um, a lot of folks that are being trained for chaplaincy or for different wellness, of course, pastoral work on different fields, um, different religions. And 
you know, I still can't really say how or why I got here, but I'll do my best to tell tell some version of the story. <laughs> um, I This is my first time also living on the East Coast and being at a private school. I'm a public school kid, you know, like just a, a very different background than many of my peers, very different energy than what I've experienced at Harvard. So that's a that's a whole nother topic. But um, I studied in undergrad, I studied political science and Spanish, and I was really interested in different ways of thinking and understanding the world, kind of doing like political theory, Latin American um, philosophy, trying to understand, um, yeah, I would say basically the world south of the US-Mexico border, which is so often um, not taught or not taught very well in, in our education in the US. And because my dad's side of the family is from Mexico, um, it's always been a really important part of my identity that I've wrestled with. Uh, and so when I when I started to really study and understand Latin America and specifically um, different ways of of thinking, different ways of relating, different ways of viewing the world, I was really hooked by that. Um, I ended up graduating from undergrad and working, doing some community work in a variety of different Denver neighborhoods. And I would say that was really formative, kind of, I had my intellectual formation during college, which I was really grateful for. And then more of kind of, I would say like my relational ethics and my way of being, my way of practicing, um, my values that I developed um, through college in in relationship with um, neighborhoods that had been or are currently being gentrified. Uh, so paying a lot of attention to um, different power differentials, paying a lot of attention to injustice and oppression that's currently happening. And then really for me, connecting the dots between how we talk about justice and oppression um, with a legacy of colonialism. So that became really important to me when I studied um, political science and specifically Latin America. Uh, later, I started thinking about how that plays out in the U.S., but really looking at and understanding the, the colonial legacy in all areas of life, right? So, you know, breaking down, like, why, why do we do democracy the way we do democracy? Like, why do we talk about um, labor and agriculture the way we talk about it? So all these different things. Uh, and then, of course, focusing that even on specific city blocks in Denver where um, we see the impacts of colonial governance structures, of settler colonial logic, of organizing our cities in certain ways. Um, and I started asking questions about like, what does it look like to be in good relationships with one another? What does it mean to heal? What does it mean to uh, decolonize is kind of the framework of like resisting that colonial network and thinking outside of it. Um, it became a very spiritual question when I started to see that myself and others in my community were leaving Christianity. So we had had maybe been formed by that. I was formed by that in my adolescence particularly. Um, but whether folks were raised in that space, a lot of us, um, especially folks of color, but even white friends, were realizing how tied these um, these systems were. Right, we were seeing that like this isn't this isn't just like an issue about like what you believe or how you practice what you believe, but this is very connected to the way that our our world is has been organized. Um, so when I started to kind of leave Christianity, question Christianity, and I was watching how a lot of communities of color were starting to practice new spiritualities, I was noticing that 
oftentimes we were being sold a very neoliberal, um, very capitalist way of doing spirituality. So maybe we were leaving a certain form of religious engagement that was problematic, but we were often maintaining some of these connections with, um, with really harmful and really violent belief systems, <laughs> but it was disguised differently, right? So uh, that's when I really was like, there's got to be more. Like, there's got to be more to the story. There has to be uh, ancestral knowledge, indigenous wisdom. Uh, there, there I, I think I remember kind of asking myself, like, there must have been a way before the colonial regime <laughs> with all of its imperfections, all of its complexities, but there had to be something else. So that's when I realized um, I was asking all these questions and really, really grateful for my colleagues and for the world I was in. But they were often like, we don't have time for that right now. Like we are we are hustling. We are working, you know, like with the impact of, um, of violence, like on the ground every day. Like go ask those questions, go to school. Like <laughs> and so that's when I realized I needed to go to school. Uh, I think I answered most of your question there. That's. That's when I was like, okay, I guess I'll go to grad school, guys. <laughs> I I love that answer. So one thing that struck me as you were talking was that um, how there are people who, who kind of get it, but they're so in hustle mode mm. for whatever reason that they can't actually fully explore these questions. And how that is such a tool of white supremacy and yes. colonization where it's like you might have some awareness, but you are prevented from being fully aware yeah. and fully remembering. And I, I love that yep. you're like, there has to be some, there has to have been something before <laughs> colonization. Yeah. And it's like, well, the U.S. as a nation, as a country, hasn't been around that long no. in comparison to other yeah. civilizations. Like it's actually yeah. kind of young. Yeah. And so yeah. – pretty childish <laughs> yeah like so so the idea that this is all there has been and this is the standard mm -hmm. and this is the way to do things it's such a it's such a brainwash moment yeah right yeah like, to think that this is the a priori truth of anything Yes. And of course, they're like combined with this. And this is something I've had to really wrestle with in, in grad school is the way that we think about modernity and the way we think about progress. And this is actually, I think, a big critique of mine of even like progressives and liberals is like this idea that we're we're on this march towards this pinnacle of human existence. And while that might mean that we think, you know, we're really smart or we could do better in the future and there's different pros and cons to that. But what often is sneaky is that it means that we have this primitivist view of the past where we think like, oh, we must be smarter. We must have better morals. We must be um, indeed more superior than those who came before us. And there's different ways that that happens. But I think in the US specifically, because we have such a limited idea of what history is and how, how, how far back our individual and collective histories go, uh, we really discount and undervalue knowledge that came before perhaps um, colonialism, before Columbus or the printer pr printing press or what, you know, like industrial revolution, like kind of pick your mark. But like generally there's these times throughout history where we start to think like this is when humanity became so special. And it usually doesn't include ancestors like yours and mine who 
were truly genius and incredible, um, important, important parts of, of developing wellness, developing a beautiful world, uh, designing and working with animals and plants, you know, <laughs> and we just, those, those kinds of connections just get erased so violently and sometimes, um, in really subtle ways, like we just don't yeah. talk about it. So, yep. yeah. And colonizers don't come over unless they think there's something of value somewhere. <laughs> yes. you know, they know yes. that there is power and wisdom and resources yeah. in a place. Ooh, I mean, I always tell people like one of the most interesting things about how the Catholics built their society is that so often they were building their churches on top of uh, really profound, powerful sites in in Mesoamerica. And you could argue a lot of different ways about that. There's, of course, the political argument of, you know, they're making a statement of, of you know, this is now the the place of governance, but there's also a spiritual dimension of like, no, this is this is truly a, 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 a space in this world that is funneling a lot of power and people know it, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's a really fascinating thing to start to dig into and start to pay attention to um, the nuances. And I, I mean, I always just am amazed all these things no one told me about my ancestors, you know, all these things that me and my cousins and family members and you, we, we're just not taught about these incredible technologies and uh, knowledges, healing modalities, like all, all of this. We don't, we get, don't get to find out how fucking smart we are. <laughs> like we came from genius, like incredible people. <laughs> That's the trick, right? That is like the mass illusion. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, this leads very beautifully into my next question which is how can Mesoamerican thoughts and practices mm. improve our current ways of knowing, healing, and community wellness? Ooh, okay. So I'll, I'm really happy to talk about Mesoamerican thought and practices pretty generally because there are a lot of kind of practices and ideas that are funneled through this idea of Mesoamerican traditions. But I think as always, um, and you know, I've heard you talk about this as well. Like there, there's so many nuances and subtleties in these different practices, depending on who you're talking to, what time period. Um, and I think always remembering, like, these are not monoliths. They're not static. They're not like pure cultures of the past. Like these are very much living, um, breathing, transforming, uh, ways of viewing the world. So, but some of the big takeaways, some of the things I love to talk about, um, particularly <laughs> includes ritual um, and how ritual connects, allows us to have relationships that we might not have otherwise, um, particularly as a, a form of healing and wellness um, that is collective, that is fundamentally collective, that I really believe that to truly respect and take seriously Mesoamerican thought is to break the idea of the individual self, the individual soul, um, and the individual as, as the pinnacle of, of our existence. And what that does is that then we're practicing rituals that help us to remember that we're part of something, we're part of a collective, that we are actually in relationship with the world around us. So whether that's a ritual of, um, of offerings, whether that's, I, I work with Kopal incense a lot, as you know, and Kopal is for me a way to always remember I am in relationship with this tree. I'm in relationship with the blood of this tree, which is the Kopal resin. 
Um, I'm in a relationship with fire, (laughs) with the smoke and the air and all the things I can't see, but that smoke sometimes makes clear to me. Um, I'm, and, and, and those, and working with those kind of materials for me, especially, and I think this is, uh, this is really important for me because when I was in different religious settings, whether that was Christian or more contemplative or more meditative, you know, I am not a sit still in the quiet kind of person. Anytime anyone anywhere asks me to like hold still and be quiet, it's really hard for my brain and body. And it actually often is like, I would say like a pretty unhealthy thing for me. Like there has to be like a pretty special container for me to be like laying here silently is healing. (laughs) Um, And so for me, it's about engagement. It's about, it's about relational engagement and that. um, And so sensory experiences like smoke and fire uh, are really important to me. Water. herbs you know like there's just and and to me it's also this waking up to the world it's not shutting down the world it's not uh kind of the closing my eyes bowing my head but it's actually looking out into the world and wonder and realizing that uh that we are we are deeply connected already (laughs) to one another (laughs) yeah I was so excited when you filled out the Google form that I have for <laughs> ask guests. And I was like, what do you want to, what do you want to talk about? What are you excited to talk about? And you wrote down blood, smoke, fire, and trees. Yeah. Let's talk about blood. trees. <laughs> oh my gosh. This is why I love talking to you, Jamie. Cause I mean, you know, I, okay. Yeah. I think blood is really important and really interesting. And I'd love to actually ask you this question too, because one of the things that one has to wrestle with when engaging Mesoamerican history and Mesoamerican religion is a very intentional and um, continued engagement with blood. So traditionally, people think a lot about human sacrifice, and I would love to talk a little bit about that because it, so often when I tell people I study the Aztecs, they're like, oh, gross, like human sacrifice, and like have very like a very kind of violent, limited view of what that means. Um, but pausing on that for a second, there's also certain forms of auto, um, auto sacrifice or bloodletting. So lots of uses of different instruments to, to give little bits of blood at a time. So that might be from like an earlobe, um, from, from hands. Um, yeah, there's, there's different piercings and processes that have different functions. And I think scholars are always trying to understand what exactly was going on there. And for me, I'm, I, I think there's something really powerful about blood and, and blood is life force. And as someone who has a uterus and has a, has a period, that's something that I've had to also continually wrestle with is like, what does this mean? What do I do with this blood? <laughs> and we live in a society that wants to like keep that under wraps and uh, get, get rid of that as much as possible. You know, like, no, do not see, do not talk, do not, um, do not hang out with blood in any, any way. And so starting to pay attention to, to blood, not just human blood, but truly through the tree blood. So when these trees were, when they are, they're continually being harvested, this um, resin's being harvested from the trees, they're sliced and they're sliced. And then often co- the blood is collected in a way that's not super sim- dissimilar from how humans would offer their bloods, um, their blood in Mesoamerican society. So there's something really powerful that I would think of as kind of like a life force blood is thought of, I mean, it's a pretty obvious life force, right? Like we, we wrestle with that when we get injured or uh, when we have to engage with blood on different levels. So I'm a big fan of blood in in conclusion. (laughs) And I'm also, I'm also, you know, still squeamish and uncomfortable and trying to figure it out. I love blood. (laughs) 
<laughs> I think blood's tell, great. Tell me more. Tell me all about blood, please. <laughs> well, I mean, from from like a clinical standpoint, bloodletting is super important in Chinese medicine. It can it treats a lot like a it treats all kinds of different conditions. Um, I think one of the most common ones that I see treated with bloodletting, and by bloodletting, I'm talking about like Chinese. medicine bloodletting which is not the same as what like european people and like white folks in like colonial u.s were doing where they like they like open up an artery and let you bleed out that is not that is not what i'm talking about did not know about that but good to know (laughs) they i'm talking about like a few drops of blood here and there right like it's it's not like like if you were to go and donate blood that is far far more blood than would ever yeah. be taken clinically from like a like a Chinese medicine treatment. Like we're just talking about like like checking your blood sugar. Like that's like the amount of blood that we're we're taking out. So therapeutically it's really helpful, especially for when we've got blood stagnations. And one of the manifestations of blood stagnation is really intense pain. So this can be back pain, this can be period cramps. Um like the kind that like has you like on the floor and then you feel better after you have your period. Yeah. Right. Like that's, it's a literal blood stagnation. And once the blood flows, the cramps recede. There are different kinds of pain that people get during their periods. And sometimes it's like happens after the period might happen like during the period. But for most folks, it's the blood stagnation that's happening uh, right before or just at the beginning of the period. And then you have a natural bloodletting that happens once you start bleeding and then the pain goes wow. away. Wow. Okay. Um, so it's the same idea. It's like <laughs> how I explain it to patients. It's kind of like, um, have you ever shotgunned a beer? <laughs> you know, like you have your beer, you poke a hole in the top and then all of a sudden the beer just like flows. That's what it's like. I just like poke a hole on it. one end of the body and then all of the rest of the the bloods and fluids they flow um and everything is better (laughs) that is the best clinical medical description of what's happening in my body i'm like now i know exactly thank you great you're welcome (laughs) (laughs) so on a clinical like a clinical like physical thing that's happening that's really important um of course like in traditional medicines it's the physical stuff isn't separate from the spiritual and the emotional things that are going on. So I'll also use some bloodletting to treat like when someone has a lot of mania, when they're panicking, when they can't sleep because their mind is racing. So the blood bloodletting, um, it relieves stagnation, also releases heat. Like if there's too much heat in the body, we have to get it out somehow. And blood is one of the materials where we can do that. Um, as far as like HELOT goes, I I don't know if there is, I'm not sure if there's bloodletting from that tradition. There probably is, but it wasn't something that I was instructed in by my teachers. Um, but blood is definitely used as an offering for different yeah. entities that we might yeah. want to build relationships with. Um, it is like an important culinary thing, not human blood. But like pork blood stew is yeah. like a big deal. It's called dinaguan. That's a okay. that's a traditional Filipino dish. Yep. Um, 
there might be like consumption of 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 human blood in in different traditions in the Philippines. Totally. I don't really know. I mean, yeah. I feel like a lot of cultures including like Christian cultures have some kind of either ritual or literal mm-hmm. cannibalism. I mean, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. blood sacrifice. Like what what was Jesus <laughs> doing on the cross? Like what is all of this practice? And what around, are we like, doing drinking the blood? Yeah, yeah the Eucharist. <laughs> Especially people yep. who believe in transubstantiation, where you're like mm-hmm. literally, literally, this becomes the body it. and blood of Christ. Yep, is that not cannibalism? Yeah, early early colonial scholars of Mesoamerica always talk about how there was an actually a very easy translation of in that aspect of Christianity. There were plenty of things that you know Mesoamerican people were like, we really don't know where you're coming from here. But um, in terms of in terms of the body and the blood, there's there's plenty to work with. There's plenty of, of interesting overlap. And I love I love that you always think about food because I was working with a teacher, a native speaker of Noah, and she was telling me about like blood sausage and like the different ways that they're working with animal blood all the time in their food. So glad I'm glad you're reminding us that this is more normal than we sometimes think it is. It's super normal. And I, I don't know exactly the pathway of this but i feel like blood um and like modern american society i get the vibe that it's people are are really afraid of it because it's associated with disease somehow yeah and i'm not saying i mean obviously there's bloodborne diseases like that is a fact but blood is also nourishment i mean breast milk is a blood product yeah so it yeah. is as much associated, like to me, it's as much associated with life and living as it is with death and illness. Beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I am very new to the, the academic study of all this stuff. And so it's been really fun to start to read more anthropology, which is a super complicated, problematic field, but paying attention to the fact that in some ways, anthropology has become the, has become the place not religious studies i think it i think it can be but oftentimes because of the kind of christian puritanical views of these of these <laughs> bodily fluids in anthropology is where we read about semen and breast milk and and it's really because folks are turning to indigenous knowledge and practices and i really enjoy reading about these things like i think there's there's a kind of we need to remember that these are natural forces that move through our bodies that connect us to one another that create um different forms of kinship that create new life that can uh usher different things different moments i mean and that's where ritual and offering can be a really profound practice is for me it's like well what does it mean that i have spit that i have breath that i have blood you know (laughs) and how how does that actually become become tools that i already have um for connecting with the world around me Ugh. Yes. Spit. Spit is also important. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. It's so good. I, I, I mean, I know we're not, that wasn't one of my questions, but I just wanted to do a quick, I just wanted to talk about spit really quickly because Please. it is, um, it's actually a remedy. It's a, it's a medicinal remedy in Hilot where if you have, um, a condition that oh now I'm blanking on the name of it, but it's it's almost similar to the evil eye a little bit, where it's kind of like you're like you're like low key mildly hexed by someone, and you just have malaise, like you just don't feel good, and it's it's like that energy of that of 
of someone has like that negative energy from someone like transferred onto you. And the remedy is to get the spit of that person and like get it imprinted on you. Like you like Whoa. get you get touched by that person's Whoa. spit in order to cure that malaise. Wow. Yeah. And I just yeah, like thinking about how allopathic medicine, like modern allopathic medicine, I'm not even going to say Western medicine because then what else is Mesoamerican except Western? Um, <laughs> always a problem, yeah. <laughs> um, but just, just how pathologizing that mindset is to our material substance, to our fluids, to our bodies, to us having a corporeal existence. Right. Which is like pathologizing to us as individuals and collectives, just in general. To embodied people, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think what's so interesting too is the way that, you're right, like we we do have to engage and think about, I mean, we just are living through, we're currently living through this pandemic and we just lived through a particularly intense version of it where our bodies, you know, we were aware of the dangers. But what happens and what you're hinting at is the ways that this pathologizing happens is we then become acutely aware of the dangers but we don't always pay attention to the power so like what does it mean that like we can infect one another with different parts of our bodies like and and because we're thinking about it so much in this dichotomy of like illness disease and and whatever health means right or these kind of normative ideas around wellness um we we forget to pay attention to the power and that's where i think these the 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 people's knowledge that Unfortunately, I mostly get through academic, academic anthropology, um, but these writings and teachings around semen spit, breast milk, blood, like they know that they're powerful. And so, and that power can, of course, like be part of really breaking and um, having really harmful relations and really bad relations. It can also be part of something really beautiful. And so I think that's sometimes the side of, <laughs> of these fluids and these aspects of our bodies that, that in modern society, we think a lot about the germs and we don't think a lot about the power and the connection. Right. If illness is contagious, what other things could be contagious? boom you know there like you ideas Ooh. resistance Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> that's so good right like that's collectively so loving on one another like that yeah. is also contagious i know oh, that's really nice that's really nice yeah yeah power is power and it, it's in and of itself i don't think it's bad that's been a big lesson for me and it's actually something that Actually, this kind of goes back to your first question about Harvard. It's something that I've really had to wrestle with entering an institution that is so powerful and is so bad. <laughs> you know, like, it's like, it is fundamentally, historically, and currently a very bad place. <laughs> like, I have no qualms saying this. Um, and, and the types of usually we talk about resources, but we could say power, right? The type of power that's granted through research, like through certain types of resources, um, even like that I already have experienced, like I've already experienced types of access, types of power that I had not had and would likely not have received without this, you know, like affiliation. And that's something that I think I'm always looking for accountability. I'm always looking for advice because 
we live in this settler colonial world. We, we, we drink this water, we breathe this air and I'm drinking a particularly toxic type of water. <laughs> you know, like all day, every day, man, all day, every day. And so like, how do we, how do we stay grounded? How do we stay connected? How do we do rituals? How do we have these kinds of conversations that are going to um, hold our feet to the fire? I think figuratively and maybe literally. <laughs> right. I mean, I think that you said the answer, which is blood, smoke, fire, and trees. <laughs> Thank goodness, because some days I feel like that's all I have. <laughs> like, I literally have said to people, like, all I have is my smoke and the trees outside that I could go hang out with. I don't know what else to do. <laughs> right, right. Um, I mean, we need those rituals to connect us to something greater and to know yeah. that we are not ever in it alone. Yeah. 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 And that's, I mean... It's such, it's such good, it's such good work. It's such hard work. And um, I've now been at Harvard Divinity School for two years, entering my third year. And um, when I said yes to coming here, I did so very, very, you know, I didn't have the like, woo, going to Harvard, first gen, you know, like there was none of this kind of like, we made it <laughs> for me. That was not, that was not my takeaway. Um, and uh and I'm very suspicious of that. Like I, I do actually understand and I have a lot of empathy for, for that kind of approach, but I'm very suspicious of it. And I'm very cautious of buying into the project at all. Um, so, you know, I think both through my podcast and through relationships, uh, it's just like, hold me accountable, hold me accountable. Do not let me be turned into you know I'm going to transform in this experience and that's one of the mm -hmm. hardest things to accept is like transformation is happening but all guides all friends all trees all fire like keep me <laughs> keep me yeah keep me on the good path man <laughs> keep that transformation in alignment yeah yeah community shout out whoop, whoop. love it um so i would love to know which bipoc group or individual you would like to yeah. name for our community shout out oh uh, okay there's really too many but i am gonna pick one because this is this group was really really important for me during my um time in lockdown my first semester of harvard um and they're called the um WOC Sister Collective. Um, basically, they're a group of, of folks who are doing a really good job, I think, and did a really good job during the pandemic, connecting people on Instagram, online. Um, Alex Purple, who leads a lot of their, their gatherings, has been a teacher from a distance for me. Um, I was able to attend their Dia de Muertos gathering online, which like is where Copal really spoke to me and helped kind of guide my work. Um, it, I was honestly like hanging out on West Coast time with them, like virtually and like on, on Instagram live because I was just on the East Coast. Like, where are the Mexicans? Where are the Chicanx people? <laughs> so I'm just super grateful to them. <laughs> I grew up on the West Coast. 
So I feel you on that. I'm just like, wow, it's a different group of people out here. <laughs> yeah. And you know, that this is, they have like a small cafe. I think it's called like East Side Cafe. And I just remember being like, you know, I cannot walk into that building. And right now nobody can because of the pandemic, but I can feel like I'm a part of this from a distance. So they really got me through a very hard semester. <laughs> What's the best way for folks to find out more information about the WOC Sister Collective? Yes, WOC Sister Collective, I think underscore after that on Instagram. Um, okay. And the founder is Alex Purple, Alex underscore purple. Yeah. Awesome. Good teachers, um, good relatives. Check them out, folks, and give them money, give them resources, <laughs> yes. help uplift their work. Yes, 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 yes. Thank you. So my last question for you, Rebecca, is what words of wisdom would you like to share with our listeners? Oh, snap. Mm. You are wise, by the way. I, I was you about to look I, very you, you doubtful. Caught me. You so caught me there. I was like, I don't have words of wisdom per se. I have some questions. I have some inquiry. I'm curious. Um, you know, yeah. So this is <laughs> it's so hard to call them words of wisdom. This is so funny. Thank you. You're putting Tips, me through this moment. Best practices. Yeah. <laughs> A nice thought to leave us with, please. Uh, take the brush off. No, I think what's so fun for me and that I want to share with other people is the fact that the way that we're taught history uh, is often so alienating and so dry and so, yeah, colonial. And the fact that I am finally getting access to ancient history in a way that feels deeply connected to my current reality deeply connected to my spiritual practice is like actually has a real impact on how we think about living our lives in relationship with, especially with the planet and during a time where we're in like severe crisis. Um, but also interpersonal, you know, interpersonal animals, plants, all of the above. Like I just, I would just say that if there's any way that you can find um, deep history, inspiring it, there's some beautiful stuff that'll cause us to rethink our world. Um, so like the stuff with blood, smoke, fire, and trees, you know, there's there's beautiful, beautiful stuff that's can feel really foreign, can feel really old, um, but that will speak to us in ways that can really, I think, ignite our imagination for our next our next steps together. So let's like let's kind of reclaim deep history because old white dudes have, have told those stories for way too long. <laughs> oh man. I love this conversation. I have that particular conversation a lot with folks yeah. where I'm like, you have to look to art. You have to look to music Ooh, Yes, because it's out there. Like you, that too. Mm -hmm. Academic journals are, are what they are and they are informative <laughs> and, it's not the only way of knowing. It's not no. the only way of presenting information. Yeah. No. Um, no. And honestly, like, yeah. if that's one thing I can offer based on the work that I do in this world is to, like, translate that stuff for folks. Like, I, that's what I want to do because it's too hard to read. It's so but, – but what's in there? The stuff embedded in there. The, the art. I mean, really ancient art, ancient society. Like, our ceramics, our sculptures. We – Yeah. 
We have really magical ancestors. And they're still yeah. they're still hanging out, so <laughs> I was having like a neurodivergent moment where what you were saying about like information and thought, I was like connecting it to how like white people make food. <laughs> how they can like make a- really healthy food, but it like tastes like bland. <laughs> That is what academic journals are. <laughs> and like, but like other, other people can take the same kinds of food and like season it and, you know, like cook it with oh, other ingredients so that like make it taste good. Like it doesn't have to taste bad. It does. It's in so fact, good. this information it can come to us in very pleasurable ways. <laughs> yes. I'm dying. I love this so much because like, I'm literally now going to think about you when I'm doing my research. and like, it doesn't have to taste bland. We can add seasoning. This can be pleasurable. Like, that's my new, that's going to be my new research <laughs> mantra here. Thank you so much for being here in this conversation with me. Thank you, Jamie. You're the best. This is wonderful. You're the best. <laughs> <laughs> Announcements. I have a new Qigong series that will be running every Sunday from February 19th to March 26th called Dambana Ang Dib Dib, which translates to Altar of the Heart or Chest in Tagalog. This series will focus on Qigong and traditional medicine concepts to support people that have a history of or a current practice of chest binding or top surgery. All folks with this experience are welcome to register. I know that I generally teach Qigong groups for QT by PGM. Those are not going away. So just stay tuned for future programming on that. The Mbana Ang Dib Dib will be held via Zoom and it'll be from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern time. Registration is currently open on my website, jamie-panetta-lac.com. That's Jamie, J-A-M-E-E, and Panetta is P-I-N-E-D-A. There are scholarships available for QT by PGM, and these scholarships are supported by members of my Patreon. So please consider joining to boost our ecosystem of wellness. I haven't shared much about my specialty in assisting people with gender-affirming medical interventions. Gender-affirming care is so much more than hormones and surgery. However, medical transition is necessary for so many of us before it is even possible to deeply engage in the rest of wellness. And this is uh, one of the first of more dedicated offerings for medical transition support. So again, stay tuned for more info on that. Um, Signing up for my newsletter is one of the best ways to keep up to date. Last episode, I mentioned that Kuan McCann, our audio engineer, just got back from Ireland where he was studying Irish stick fighting. If you are curious about this journey, we will be talking about this more in a future episode, so stay tuned for that. If you're a queer trans person interested in learning how to swing sticks at fascists, or maybe you just want to take a movement class that works with folks of varying abilities and experience, then check out Be More Bata on Instagram. 
Episodes 18, 19, and 20 of this podcast are now captioned and up on YouTube. Captions and Qigong scholarships for QT by PGM are brought to you by the Patreon members. Um, in addition to being part of this ecosystem of care, Patreon members also get access to Qigong videos and bonus episodes of this podcast posted every new moon. Maraming salamat for listening to the Decolonizing Medicine podcast. Music is by Amber Ojeda, Head Candy, and Rocky Marciano. Big thanks to Kuan McCann for audio engineering all of the episodes. And last but not least, thank you to all our listeners and supporters out there. Ingat. Mm-hmm.